0: Hey guys, I'm Rob.
1: And I'm Ashton.
0: And this is the We Held It Together podcast.
1: A podcast on faith, marriage, and mental health.
0: And a bunch of random stuff.
1: We hope you enjoy. Hey guys, how's it going today?
0: Welcome back.
1: We have an exciting guest here today with us, Lauren Jones who we know from church. (laughs) Her husband's also in the room with us, Jeff, so um, he'll be in the background. But um, we know Lauren from our church rebuild, which we've mentioned before that we go to in Durham, that we love so much. And Lauren, I guess we met because you and I serve kids together. Is that really how? Builders saving little lives. (laughs) Saving little (laughs) lives. Um, But Lauren is an occupational therapist at UNC Chapel Hill Hospital. Mm-hmm. Okay, and um, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Nice. I want to make sure. Yeah, I that. <laughs> that is in fact where I work. <laughs> um, well, I guess tell us a little bit about how you got into that, and you know what kind of was your passion behind becoming an occupational therapist, and what you do with that.
2: Right. So I guess I'll start with a description of occupational therapy. Um, so, long story short. Occupations are anything that occupy your time, that lends meaning to your day. So an occupational therapist helps a person who is having difficulty engaging in whatever occupations that they find meaningful or valuable or something that they need or want to do if they're disrupted by injury, illness, external circumstances, whatever. So from things like waking up in the morning to be able to get out of bed, brush your teeth, wash your face, fix your own breakfast, get dressed, drive to work, to things like being able to interact with people at work, to communicate, to organize your day, being able to come home, hang out with people, engage in leisure occupations. So all of the things that make up essentially a person's life can be disrupted by any sort of health condition, right? So I work with people who have had strokes that impact their ability to be a mother, be a father, be a student, or people with mental health conditions that make it difficult for them to go to school or work or parent the way that they want to. So I found my way into this career. My mom's a nurse and she went back to school for nursing. And so I spent a lot of time reading her textbooks and she would tell me what she was learning about. And I really loved the science and human elements. And so I went to college and was looking at different careers and what I wanted to do. And so I had explored physical therapy and I was like, eh, that's not quite it. I really am afraid of sweat. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not really a big exercise fan, so it felt a little hypocritical. So I kept exploring health careers and my advisor pointed me in the direction of occupational therapy. And I started reading about it and absolutely loved it. So both my parents were in the military. And so for me, my ultimate goal And the career is to be able to work with veterans and their families one day, either in mental health or physical rehab or in the community or something like that. But that's how I found my way into occupational therapy in general and how I found myself working, as Ashton said, in inpatient psychiatry at UNC Hospital. Um, I worked in the schools prior to that, and then I worked at UNC Recs in acute care, seeing a lot of people with a lot of different health conditions so i worked on a stroke unit i worked on a cancer unit i worked on a surgical floor i would sometimes be in the intensive care unit or icu and it was really fascinating to be able to see these people but i was really disappointed in the healthcare's treatment of the overall health and well-being of a person, so not just addressing the physical reasons for health decline. Um, for example, there was a person, a man who was I think 48, and he's really someone who stuck with me as I transitioned into the mental health setting because he had Guillain-Barré and so was essentially paralyzed. Mm-hmm. So he's a 48-year-old man who worked in construction his whole life, um, was used to being able to go where he wanted, do what he wanted. Um, had a girlfriend at the time, had children who were older and he was paralyzed in this bed when I met him and he was a substance user for most of his life. So had been using substances and his hospitalization of at the time when I met him, I think three to four weeks was the longest he had ever been sober since he started wow. using drugs when he was 13 or 14. And I was just shocked that no one was addressing his mental health needs and his substance use needs while he was there. Everyone was so focused on where he was going to discharge to and how we can position him in the bed and his physical rehabilitation, which was super important. Right. But also addressing the fact that here's a person who hasn't been sober in probably approaching 30 years. And here's an opportunity we have as healthcare providers to be able to meet him where he was and help him get tools in his tool belt for maintaining sobriety and living the life that he wanted to live. Um, And so for me, that was a thread that was woven through my experiences working in the schools and Mm. in other hospitals. Um, Just ignore that. You didn't hear that. Every (laughs) time, Always a cell phone going off. Sorry. Right? Okay. Right. And so that was something I saw with other people. So there would be people who were in the hospital for strokes, but the mental health aspect of having a stroke and having your life be changed potentially forever wasn't Mm -hmm. really addressed effectively. So what does that mean to wake up one day and not be able to walk anymore, or even to go to the bathroom by yourself or to be able to take care of your kids or go to your job or be a partner to your spouse or drive or do any of these things. But so much of the focus was on the physical rehabilitation that the mental health element was lost. And so And looking for a setting where I could be useful and use my skills as an occupational therapist to meet people's needs, their mental health and physical health needs, is how I found my way to UNC. Yeah. That's awesome.
0: Yeah, I don't think I've ever, like, thought of it in that way. But it's definitely, like, eye-opening. Because it is a huge change for people. Like, a physical change can definitely affect you uh, mentally and emotionally and all that. So...
1: It was very cool. Um... I feel that's pretty interesting that you didn't have any history with, like, mental health. Or were you fascinated with, like, I don't know, psychology and stuff like that before you met this man?
2: Yeah, so I majored in psychology in undergrad. So I went to school for that and also having had experiences with my own mental health, which I feel comfortable talking about. Um, So, like I said, both of my parents were in the military And so my dad was deployed right after 9-11, and so for me, I think that was the beginning of, at the time, didn't know what to call it, but intense anxiety and probably depression that was undiagnosed. Um, So my brother and I were the only two kids in a small town in Virginia who had a parent who was deployed, so there were not necessarily the same supports that there might have been if we had been in schools that were closer to a military base, like in in Virginia, for example, or even Northern Virginia. Um, And so just the intense anxiety that I lived with for years and years and years, not knowing if my dad was going to come home. Every time the phone rang, I was afraid to answer it because I thought it was somebody calling to tell me that something awful had happened. Every time the doorbell rang, I was afraid to answer the door. And so just kind of this constant living in fear and having this burden on my shoulders. And so wanting to understand more about that and Long story short, went to college, eventually started seeing a counselor, went to grad school, um, continued seeing a counselor and getting treatment and medication. And so, hasn't always been an easy road, but also as a therapist, having that inform what I do and understanding how having a mental health condition or being a family member of somebody with a mental health condition impacts your life. So, how did that impact? my ability to be a student and go to school or socialize or play with other kids or have fun with my family, all of that. So,
1: yeah, that's, you're, that's amazing, girl. You're amazing.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, also, I'm just like thinking about that guy that you were talking about
1: who was laid up in bed, but also had addiction and mental illness, which often go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. And so it is impressive that you had the heart to... I don't know, seek after helping him when not everybody necessarily is always willing to seek after that for him. Yeah. So I think I just, I don't know, just super impressed. Um, do, you, do you want me to help you out? Sure. I <laughs> um, well, I guess, so one thing that we wanted to talk to you about, because we so often are talking to patients on here right. and not talking to healthcare workers, is what do you feel like you would change in the mental health industry right now? that you see, you feel like it's like a problem or maybe things that you think you feel
2: like are done really well. Um, What are some of those things? I think in thinking about my, so there are multiple levels that I'm kind of thinking about this. So obviously nationwide and system-wide, at least in the United States, wishing that the healthcare industry cared for people and supported people before there was a crisis to get people the services and the supports that they needed before they were at a point, which there's nothing wrong with being in crisis, right? Like mental health is a journey. And so everyone has different points in their life, different events that could take place. Someone who never experienced any mental health issues could have something happen in their life that suddenly changed everything for them, right? And so having a crisis can be part of someone's natural life course, but certainly for people who are predisposed to anxiety or depression or people who um, have symptoms or that their family sees or maybe that their provider or school teacher or anyone who they interact with sees, I wish that there was a better way to get people's support before everything kind of comes crashing down a way that it was integrated into what kids learn about in school. So not just eating well and sleeping, which is important for mental health and for maintaining physical health, right? But Mm -hmm. knowing what does anxiety look like? What does it feel like? What is it that you might see in your older brother or your parents or your family that we could support you um, in dealing with and also just payment for it? A lot of people with mental health concerns, don't have a way to get the treatment that they need. They aren't able to afford copays. they aren't able to afford therapy, they aren't able to afford medication, they aren't able to afford any sort of treatment. And so what ends up happening is the condition that they have gets worse. They might experience a crisis and be hospitalized and if they're uninsured get discharged with maybe 90 days or 60 days worth of medication and a recommendation to go to this free clinic. Right, but then the support that you actually need to live well with a mental health condition isn't there for somebody. So there are no supports. There's very little infrastructure for people with mental health concerns. Um, I think it's not prioritized as highly as mm-hmm. other mm-hmm. elements of health, and so our healthcare system is more reactive than proactive mm-hmm. in a lot of ways, um, and so continues to support people's being disabled by mental health conditions that would otherwise be treatable in some sense, not necessarily curable, but could improve someone's quality of life. Um, I think also a lot of what I do as an occupational therapist is considering how people's environments like the social environment, the built environment or the physical environments that they're in, um, contribute to or detract from wellness and so just looking at the hospital where I work and in talking with people who've been there about what used to be available to patients um, is something that's really hard for me going in every day. So seeing essentially where I work, are they're all locked units. So you have to have a badge or a key to get on and off the units. Um, the patients who were there, there's usually a big day room with some tables since the pandemic happened they've taken out most of the tables because they don't want people congregating Mm -hmm. um which is you know that's hard right Right. (laughs) like there's not a lot that they can Mm -hmm. do about that um so some of the circumstances aren't necessarily the hospital's fault and they're kind of trying to keep people safe the best that they can um but it's a big day room and so there are some windows there and bedrooms that people are in and whatever but the built environment is having a door that's locked, right? Like you're not able to freely come and go. There's not necessarily any sort of plants or homey elements, like blankets or things that would make you feel comfortable, like you were in a homier sort of treatment facility. Everything has to be wiped downable or, you know, yeah. for infection control, can't have shared materials or things like that. So it seems, in a lot of ways, very sterile. There's no sort of touches of home. It's all hospital chairs and equipment and things like that. Um, on some units, the refrigerator is accessible. On other units, it's locked. So not even being able to get a snack when you want to without having to ask a nurse or wait for snack time to come up or a meal time or whatever. Um, so those are some of the things that are challenging about being on the units where I work and I wish could be different. Um Some of the other things... I'm just thinking about everything where I work as kind of playing devil's (laughs) advocate. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it's like playing devil's advocate, though, because there are people sometimes who are in crisis who are looking to end their lives or who are looking to hurt themselves or hurt other people, and so not being able to have cabinets with materials that people could use to do that, right? Like, when I'm planning groups or treatments on the unit, there are so many rules about what I can and can't bring, Mm -hmm. Like, I, I have to count all of the items that I bring on and off the unit. Like, I can typically only bring paper I'm not allowed to bring. I have to sign out and get a co-worker to co-sign that I brought two pairs of scissors or I bought something that's a moderate or high-level risk. Like, a pencil is something that's moderate to high-level risk. So having to monitor all of these things and having the environment of constant surveillance, right, where people are knocking on the doors doing what's called Q15 or every 15 minute checks on somebody. So kind of the big brother type right. environment and not having been on the side of receiving treatment, it doesn't seem great. <laughs> yeah. You guys might have more insight into that. I mean, it seems pretty, <laughs> no, I think it's definitely
1: like what you're saying. It is interesting because we went from hospitalization to an 30 day stay. Well, we, I say we, but you went from that. I mean, I was a part of it. But where yep. you were, you were able to bring your own bedding. You were able to like have your book bag there with your computer, your cell phone. Your, I mean, you had everything for thirty days. It
0: was. Yeah, and I think it's all about. I mean, unfortunately, it took like a rock and hard place because you have to have really good screening because you have to accommodate people that might be more severe. And so I think with the place that you're referring to. It was not, definitely not um, acute, and, right. you know, I think they, they definitely wanted to talk with your psychiatrist and your therapist and kind of get a full picture of where you were.
1: Right. Um, at Hopeway. At Hopeway, yeah. yeah. They, they really wanted to set you up for success leaving there, and they wanted to make sure that it was 30 days of, I mean, you were in class, he was in classes from 8 a.m. to like 5 p.m. Yeah, it was a full,
0: full days of things yeah
1: so I think that was super helpful I do think that that's something that because it was private health care ah. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that's like where you know, I mean in, I don't know is UNC hospital privatized or no, no and I think that that's where maybe it makes a huge difference is private health care you can you can do it how you want but when it's owned by the government it it definitely is different <laughs> Like the yeah, va versus yeah, it's funny
0: you're talking about all that. It reminded me of them. Uh, you know, they watch us while we eat, and then you'd have to turn in your silverware and yeah, count it. Count, yeah, they count. Yeah, if you have the right. silverware,
2: or if you're if you get silverware, some people are on finger food restrictions and
0: oh wow can't okay, have that. Plastic is that for
2: <laughs> more like the eating disorder patients maybe or no no that's everyone so. Um, I don't know if it'd be helpful. I can explain a little more about the breakdown of the units at UNC, but it sure. might not be relevant. So there's seven... Oh, my gosh, that sounds terrible. I should know this. But um, seven <laughs> units at UNC, and they're all the psychiatry units are locked units. There's also the behavioral health emergency department, which is downstairs, and that's kind. It's very different than the units that are upstairs. Um, and so on the units, there is the psychotic disorders unit, there's children, adolescents, eating disorders, Um, there's geropsychiatry and a perinatal psychiatry unit. I'm trying to think if I left anything out. And a crisis stabilization unit. So, yeah, there's seven units that are there. Um, And as far as kind of getting back to the materials that you can and can't have, It depends um, on the individual person. So some people are having concerns with self-harming or hoarding items and things like that. And so they're on a finger food restriction with, like, a cardboard tray. And that's what they get when they order meals. Like, they can't have cups or, like, the little plastic water bottles or whatnot. They get removed from the trays. But the majority of people, once they've demonstrated that they can be safe, have kind of the regular hospital tray and yeah. whatever. But... We
1: asked for you to be at UNC. You remember that? Mm-hmm. We begged.
2: <laughs>
0: yeah. But we were told y'all end. were full.
1: They were like, everybody wants UNC <laughs> Hospital. <Yeah>. So <laughs> Which I never knew that.
0: I mean, that's the, the, the split up is great. I think. Because um, so many places that I went, it was just all compiled in one place. So yeah, you just had more severe cases or, or just different Yeah, it was just a lot different.
2: Um, Yeah, and that's not a lot that I know about kind of what happens, like the waiting to hear. Like, I'll hear about it, obviously, whether people come upstairs and I meet them or if I meet them in the emergency department and then they end up going to another facility based on insurance or just bed availability or they're fit with um, the milieu on the unit. Like, sometimes there have been cases when the person had a particular situation or diagnosis that with the people who were already upstairs, they were concerned about the safety of one group or another. And so Mm -hmm. the decision is made by the team kind of taking everyone's safety into account. So it really is a moving target. Like sometimes there have been people who were in the emergency department and came upstairs for a few weeks and then they came back, um, had a relapse a couple of weeks later and they went to a completely different facility because in that time the milieu had changed or the situation had changed. So... That's, yeah. Interesting. It's very interesting.
0: Do you think that um, it's hard for you to leave stuff at work and, you know, coming home and kind of bring that with you, like a hard day? I mean, I think that affects everybody at some level, but is that something you've dealt with?
2: I think for me and working in any setting in healthcare as a healthcare provider, there has to be some level of self-protection and self-insulation from the things that I'm exposed to. Um, I would say that for the majority of people, I and Jeff, this might be a time for you to chime in, don't necessarily... He's like, oh my gosh, I don't want (laughs) to talk. But I don't necessarily bring it home beyond being frustrated about something or like, wow, this was a really hard situation that this person is in, or I really wish that the system could be different or if there was something I could do differently to help them. Um, Emotionally, I think I do a fairly good job of kind of keeping my head above water and being really careful because I think knowing that I have to wake up Monday through Friday and have the energy and um, time and knowledge to give to other people there's only so much that I can take on right and mm-hmm. I will so tell y'all many, Lauren yeah. is like one of the peppiest people I've ever met so. <laughs> <laughs> she's always full
1: of energy which I don't know if you're like that all the time but every time I see you you are a ball of
2: energy I was like you don't see me between 6am and 9am so like <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't. Yeah, right? I'm like slogging every day. I'm like, oh, it's happening again. (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) No
1: judgment. I'm the same way. Robert says I'm a new person in the morning, but... um, Something.
0: She's something. (laughs) That's for sure. New and different. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Special.
1: Um, Well, what do you feel like is something that you would recommend for people who are struggling, whether it be are hitting rock bottom. Cause I know we talked about that where you felt like you wish that people had the opportunity to seek that help out. Um, so what's your recommendations? Like, where do you feel like people should start or go from there? And you may not have that recommendation, but I feel like you're around it all the time. And it probably feels like if only they could have done this sooner, <laughs> then
2: maybe they wouldn't be here,
1: but maybe I'm wrong.
2: <laughs> right. Yeah. Like sometimes it's, I think people aren't necessarily aware. I think building self-awareness is something that's important, but it comes with practice and comes with time, mm-hmm. right? And if it's not something that your family or your parents or the people who you're around are aware of, right, like I might notice something in somebody that's very strikingly different and doesn't seem right or doesn't seem normal. It just seems sort of off and being aware of that and saying, hey, how are you doing? Like, no, really, how are you doing? Like, and figuring figuring that out with somebody. But that self-awareness in knowing, you know, this isn't normal for me. Yeah. Like, right after we got married and the whole first year we were married, it was a really difficult time for me mental health-wise. Like, I wasn't getting treatment. We were newlyweds. I was at a job that was really hard for me. I didn't have any, like, therapy or mental health support in any sense. But there came a day when... I woke up and I was crying because I had to go to work that day. And I was like, this is not right. <laughs> this yeah. is not how I should be living. I should not be having insomnia because I'm afraid to go to sleep because I know I have to wake up and go to, go to this job, you know? And so mental health in that sense was a lot related to that job, but also some of the pressures of being newly married and, you know, whatever, all that sort of thing in the workforce. But so that self-awareness of, this is not normal. This is something that I need to A, tell somebody about and B, seek treatment for. Because I think that's the action step that's missing. A lot of people will confide in their friends or they might tell their mom, like, I've been having a really hard couple of months and I just, you know, I can't get up. Or like, I haven't done anything. I haven't been out of the house. I haven't seen my friends. I haven't taken a shower in weeks, right? Like all of these things that to me as an occupational therapist or alarm bells going off, like your routine has shifted, like your social participation has changed. Your self care has changed the way that you interact and communicate with people has changed. Either you're super irritable or you're just not communicating with people anymore. Um, So that self awareness of understanding what's my normal, what's my baseline and what is, you know, who kind of, who am I becoming right now? Like from being super peppy and super happy to waking up crying every day is (laughs) a big shift. Like that's not normal. Um,
0: And I think to piggyback on that, um, I think it probably changes on who you are, but I know for me, you know, I would always, my personality is to rationalize and justify things. So it'd be like, so I almost needed a good um, relationship like the one I have with Ashton to kind of call me out on it. I, I don't think I would have probably ever admitted to myself Um just because of who I am. And that's just... Yeah, I had such a negative self-image that, um, yeah, it was always just my fault. And, like, I can get, you know, pick yourself up, you know, that kind of mindset, so...
1: Well, and Lauren was the one who... I don't know if you saw it in Robert. I don't know. Maybe you did, but like when I texted about, about I texted Lauren to ask yeah. her about the VA and she, I mean, I tried to play it cool. I thought I was doing so great. i a friend of my friend. I was like, hey, I have a friend who's looking at getting admitted into the VA. Like, do you have any recommendations? And she's like, how's Robert? <laughs> right <laughs> off the bat. And I was like, well, dang it. I'm not, I'm not sly at all. <laughs> but yeah, I like... think, I think that's amazing that you pick up on that kind of stuff. And I think it, it meant a lot to me because I hadn't told anybody. So I was like, Well, (laughs) not great, (laughs) but it it meant the world. And then that way you checked in on me. And that was such a blessing to me as well. And I think that's the other thing. I was talking to somebody recently just about nothing related to mental health. But I think when we tell people about the struggles that we're going through, we're often shocked at the response that you have someone there to pray for you. The more people that know about that kind of stuff or the more people that can be praying for you and checking in on you and caring about you. Yeah. And oftentimes when you're in the low mental health places, you, you don't necessarily want people checking in on you, but they still do it. And I think that that, that means a lot to people.
0: Oh yeah. There was plenty of people for me that kept pressing in, kept sending me texts, even though like I wouldn't respond or, yeah, you know, would yes. shy back or isolate. And, and,
1: and Lauren did that. She would check in on me to see how you were doing. So I think that that's super cool and super special gift that you have from the Lord, to be
2: intuitive. Yeah. I think it's hard though in, like you said, when people are pressing like to know how much support to give and if somebody's ready to share that they're um, suffering or in a dark place or some, for some people like experiencing kind of the guilt of like a loss of faith or does, um, especially if, some people are Christian and trying to understand what does it mean to be depressed or to feel hopeless or suicidal and to be a man or woman of God. Like, Mm -hmm. are those two things compatible? Is this something that I can still be and do? And so on top of feeling like I want to end my life and knowing you're a cherished child of God. Mm -hmm. And so the guilt of very (laughs) yeah, (laughs) like just, and my hope is in Jesus, but I feel hopeless. And it's this, Right. Mm -hmm. so then, oh, am I really a Christian? Because if I was Christian, I would pick myself up and I would just pray it away and Mm -hmm. like the cloud would lift, but that's not happening for me. And so just kind of the complexity of with withdrawing from church or from social occupations or your routines change and people are asleep all the time or just sensory changes that make it hard to be in church or just low energy if you're experiencing depression or anxiety, you know, just all of these things that make it hard to be part of your church community or even ask for support or get support and then a whole another level of guilt like i haven't been to church in weeks right. i'm depressed i don't have the support that i could get from being in church right like it's just we we've, yeah. been, yeah, we've been through have been through that language. you're you're like literally verbatim
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly
0: yeah
1: <laughs> this isn't yeah i'm like wow this is so us this is where we yeah. were yes <laughs> but um well i think that's everything that we have for you, question-wise. But, I I mean, I'm super glad that we had you on. I think it was super insightful. And yeah,
0: absolutely. And na-
1: who knows, we might just keep bringing you back to ask you more questions throughout because you're our, you're our inside source into the psychiatric realm of hospitalization. Yeah, and I, and
0: I do want to just touch on one last thing yeah. about... Um, you mentioned... You know, education while you're young and then just I think even when you grow up as well um, it's kind of a lack thereof and I think that's something I would stress to people listening is just learn proper coping skills because you don't need to be worst case scenario to use them I mean I think everyone right. deals with anxiety at some level and so to have proper coping skills to you know realize what you're doing kind of or like you know that road you're going down and be able to address it quickly and, you know, pick yourself back up. I think it's just a skill everyone needs, so.
2: Yeah, and to that, I would add a friend of mine, she works, um, she used to work at the VA. Her name is Katie. She's an occupational therapist who I admire. admire She's really excellent um, and a role model for me. And she, we were having a conversation and she was like, you know, I really don't like the term coping skills because it makes it seem like it's something you do when something is going wrong or you have to cope in a situation and she said I really like to frame it in terms of wellness tools like what do you need to do to stay well like what is in your tool belt right and so a coping skill sometimes seems like something you would reach for if you're in crisis or experiencing a decline in mental health versus a framework of what do I need to do to maintain wellness, right? Like walking every day, like your diet matters a lot. Am I getting enough sleep? Am I, what level of social engagement do I have, right? Like, am I taking care of myself spiritually or physically? Am I washing my body? And so looking at all of the ways that you can have to stay well and maintain wellness versus like, I'm approaching this crisis or I'm really anxious or stressed out. And now I need like a coping skill in the middle of something, which from the experience of the people I've talked to and work with can just be really hard to mm-hmm. to reach for
0: in oh, a time absolutely. like... You're, like just, you're climbing out of a it's hole. It's not natural. Right. It, you know, yeah. at that point, it's definitely not a natural thing to jump to that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, that's... But, that's I love that. I feel like that's definitely a good change of vocabulary. Good way to, to put
0: it. Yeah. Yeah.
2: And it's yeah. important. coping skills are important, too, though, right? Like, still need to know how to cope with anxiety yeah. and calm yourself or wake yourself up or do whatever you need to do, but... Framing mental health as more of a everyday like how can I support myself and surround myself with supports versus like well, climbing I, out of a hole. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I think touching on that too though, and we've talked about this before, is also educating your children. Yeah. Um, and being aware of your children and where they're at and talking with your kids, checking in with their mental like mental health, just making sure that they're not feeling because I I do know multiple people that have said I had no idea that my child was going through something and until you know either it's too late or it's to the point where it could get really bad really quickly and I think that that's something that we as we're potentially coming into parenthood is hoping that we can talk to kids or our children and then also just hoping that other people can learn to talk to their children as well
0: yeah absolutely and I think, you know, I took a child psychology, psychology, you know, whatever, <laughs> class. One of the two. <laughs> and, um, it was saying how, you know, in, like, sports, for instance, it, you know, it's like, oh, I scored a goal. And the kid will be like, oh, I just got lucky. You know, they'll, they'll put it to somebody, something else. And then it's like, oh, you did really bad. And they're going to take that on fully. And I think it's, like, stuff like that you can address young and, um, kind of show them like no you can give yourself a win you can set goals for yourself like well I improved in this area maybe I didn't you know get the goal but I got a little better
2: right like teaching your kids how to frame different scenarios because that contributes to mental health as well do you see it as you know oh my gosh I scored two goals but I missed the third I'm just focused on the one that I missed or I did great in this area and have some room to improve right and as a parent to be able to support kind of that reframing and being able to see things in different ways and more positive and more realistic ultimately ways.
1: Yeah. That's so true. Such good stuff.
0: Yeah. Yeah, seriously.
1: <laughs> I know it's it's very insightful. Well, um thank you so
2: much for
0: yeah, thank you guys. Out. Yeah.
2: It's great. Now I can be famous too. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: And try like, ice cream. We What's are cream? so, yeah, we're going to take Lauren and Jeff to, to go eat it. ice
1: cream. So,
0: so if um, you want to be on, you can let us know. We'll...
1: Also, we would like to say this is pre-Daniel Fast Rebuild Family Fellowship. But Rebuild Fellowship Family. That Just is so you know. <laughs> <laughs> this was pre-Daniel Fast. <laughs> but anyways, we will see you guys next week.
0: Hey, folks, real quick, I want to tell you about a need-to-have product for your home the Auto Fire Guard, or better known as AFG Fireball. This product performs better than a fire extinguisher or overhead sprinkler system. Ashton and I wish we had known about the Fireball prior to our house fire, but we sleep better now that we have one. Get yours today at quoradistribution.com. That's Q-U-O-R-A distribution.com. And use code Together at checkout for your discount. Again, that's held Together.
1: Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in our episode this week. We hope you subscribe and give us that five-star review. We would like to thank Alex Manring for our artwork and Audio Jungle for our music. The podcast was done by Robert and me. We'll see you next week.